Hey guys, uh, welcome back to Storecast. We've got a really exciting episode for you today. Our 14th episode, we'll be interviewing Grant Hackett, famous Olympic swimmer and less known for his self-storage investment. Uh, 14th episode uh, of the the series. Last episode, we covered self-storage valuation uh, with a couple of the leading valuers here in Australia. Some great lessons out of that and some really optimistic outlooks for the self-storage industry. Uh, which was great to learn about. Today, a bit of a pivot. We're going to talk with Grant about some self-storage, but we're also going to talk to Grant about his sport and business life. And it's so great to listen to a a high-quality performer uh, who's delivered on the world stage. And we can all take some lessons from that. So let's rip in and, uh, and see what Grant's got to say. Well, it's a big welcome to our uh, viewers, listeners throughout the self-storage and general investment industry. Really pleased to be recording our 14th Storecast episode today. Um, Storecast is a webinar which we've, uh, which we've produced throughout COVID as a way for us to give back to the self-storage industry to share some of the lessons that we've learned and some of the, the practices that we've implemented into self-storage. But also uh, to talk to some business people and some successful sporting uh, people from right around the world about what lessons they've learnt throughout their successful careers and how our audience might be able to apply that to their day-to-day business and their personal lives as well. Today's guest is a long-term mate of mine, uh, one, of the, uh, one of the best guys uh, that I've met, uh, and he's also a long-term self-storage industry investor uh, with us here at Store Local. He's a very famous Australian sports person. He's known around the world for his Olympic gold medal wins in the pool, And he's also a success off the field. He has a burgeoning business career, which he's built through hard work and determination, just as he built uh, an outstanding career in the pool. He's currently isolated as part of Melbourne's long-term COVID-19 lockdown, uh, but he's been kind enough to spend some time with us today. I'm really delighted to welcome Grant Hackett to the Store Local Storecast. Welcome, mate. How you going? Yeah, good, buddy. How are you? Yeah, very, very well. Thank you, mate. So just going to run through a bit of uh, how and why you've invested in self-storage, uh, go back to uh, uh, our early days in self-storage together. But I also want to bring our viewers and listeners on the journey of Grant Hackett, uh, your evolution into a world-class performer from a very young age, and your path now as you build out your business c- career and your family life. Uh, which has been a, a wonderful thing uh, for me to watch and, uh, and, and, and be involved in with you. So for the benefit of, of listeners uh, and viewers, uh, the swimming notes. Now, I've done, done my research, Hacky, and, uh, and I'm just going to run through this. I might be at risk of embarrassing you, but I think it's, it's really worthwhile uh, for people just to understand the, the breadth of your career. Uh, 1997 Pan Pax, you debuted on the international stage at the age of 17. Uh, with a win in the 1500 freestyle and the 400 metre freestyle. Uh, And for those that don't know, the 1500 metre freestyle is the most gruelling Olympic swimming event, uh, up and down uh, the 50 metre pool at high speed. And if you've ever had the fortune of seeing Grant or other 1500 metre swimmers at an elite level maintain that pace over 1500 metres, it's absolutely something to see. 
You've gone on from the 1997 Pam Packs to straight into the 1998 World Champs where you, you won gold in the 1500 metre in the relay, uh, the 200 metre relay that is. Then a world record in 1999 uh, in the 200 metres. Uh, it's starting to come up against your old foe Ian Thorpe right about now. Uh, with you, uh, probably the, the greatest male uh, Olympic swimmers that, uh, that Australia has produced. The 2000 Olympic Games at home in Sydney brought gold in the 1500 metres as you battled a virus which hurt you a lot in the 200 and the 400 in the relay. Uh, and you vanquished another long-term opponent there in Kieran Perkins, uh, part of Australia's long and famous tradition in the 1500 metres in a, in a swim for the ages. 2001 world record in the world champs in the 1500 and then in fact you're unbeaten in, in the 1500 from 1997 to 2007 in all meets uh, internationally which which made us a real credit to you and an amazing feat and as as i said a really incredibly grueling event 2004 athens olympics you had a collapse, collapsed lung but you still won the 1500 and came second in the 400 uh, i don't know how you did it 2005 World Champs gold in the 400, 800, 1500. First swimmer ever to do that, a second in the 200. World Swimmer of the Year in 2005, sandwiched between a couple of Michael Phelps's uh, titles as International Swimmer of the Year. You snuck one in on him, which is great. Yeah, <laughs> He's a good mate of yours, I know. He's hard to beat. You're uh, in some pretty good company there. 2008, second in the 1500 at the Olympics behind a Tunisian who I don't think before or since has done a whole lot of 1500 um, uh, activity. And I, I really just want to yeah, acknowledge that second. Uh, and I, I know personally, uh, talking with you through, through that time, to, to lift yourself up and come back for another Olympics, a third Olympics in the 1500, it would have been the only male swimmer to win three events in a row at an Olympics at that point, uh, was, was absolutely remarkable. Uh, not done, 2015 comeback at the age of uh, 35, a sprightly young 35, and you picked up a relay medal. Uh, uh, so, mate, you've got, a, you've got an incredible career. Overall, five world records, if I'm right. And uh, well, yeah, individual ones, I think. Um, but if you count short course and relays, it's 16 or 17, because I broke about the same in the short course pool. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, well, fantastic. 16, 17 world records, stunning. and. Uh, and, uh, and 58 medals, according to our friends at Wikipedia, and 36 gold uh, in, the, uh, in, in international uh, swimming. Uh, mate, I dare say you might need some self-storage to store all those trophies and medals, Hacky. Uh, <laughs> what a great thing, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, you know, some, some, in, some incredible sporting success, and we'll come back and talk about that, and we've spoken over the years about what drives you and, and some of those key moments and turning points, which I think viewers and listeners will be really interesting, interested to understand, you know, what goes through the mind of a, of a top competitor uh, to, to dream of elite success, overcome hurdles and actually then deliver it uh, and, then, and then carry life on afterwards. Uh, in business, you've got a double degree in commerce and law, an MBA from Bond University at the Gold Coast in Australia. You've been awarded an Order of Australia medal, inducted in 2014 into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the success has continued. Family, which is very dear to you, I know. Uh, you, your 
your family uh, is based on the Gold Coast. It feels probably like a very long, long way away from Melbourne right now in the middle of the lockdown. Uh, but your own family, you and Charlene, recently engaged, which is which is wonderful. I know you're, you're really delighted about that. And you've got a wonderful young and quite large long-legged baby boy named Eddie. <laughs> um, and a proud dad, of course, to the twins, Jagger and Charlize, who are, who are tipping into the teenage years now. So... Uh, a very busy life and, and in your day-to-day business life, CEO of Generation Life, which is an investment bond business which offers tax-effective investment solutions. I'll give you a great opportunity to plug that as we have a chat. Uh, and that's, that's a nationwide CEO role, uh, previously uh, senior roles at Westpac um, and elsewhere. So there's a bit of an intro for, for viewers and listeners. Um, my opportunity to embarrass Hacky a little bit, but, but mate, uh, some, some great success there and as we'll talk, I know uh, that you're just getting started and, uh, and you've got a whole other chapter yet to write, which is, which is really exciting. So to kick things off, we've known each other a long time. Uh, your resilience has always impressed me no end, I have to say, but I've got to ask, how's life in Melbourne? You, you've only had five weeks out of lockdown since mid-March in 2020. Can you describe life in lockdown for our viewers who, who uh, in other parts of the world might have been back into normal operation post-COVID in sort of May, June of 2020, but you're still there mid-September under a curfew situation and a pretty tough existence there in Melbourne? Yeah, look, first and foremost, it's not easy. It's, it's difficult to, um, you know, think when are we going to be out of this? And, and it's quite funny. I mean, I go, we're in September, but it feels like I'm stuck in the second Wednesday of March. <laughs> like the year's flowing and you kind of think, where's it, where, where's it gone? You can see I'm operating here from home. I've been doing a, a CEO role with 70 staff um, based around the country, a couple up in Hong Kong uh, from here. And we've been going very well, but it's it certainly had its challenge both professionally and personally. Um, the, the thing that I've really noticed through this period, you can choose the way you're going to approach it, right? Like there's situations you can control the situations you can't control and i can't control you know right now living in this state um given the curfews given the the lockdowns given the you know all the measures that are put in place um i can't control any of that i can vote with my feet eventually when when we go to change governments but that's about it that's my degree of control which is two years away however what i can control is my approach towards this situation so um what what structure do i have in my day to day how do i bifurcate the difference between work and home life which is very difficult. I find myself sitting here till 8.30, 9 o'clock, 9.30, sometimes thinking, geez, I should log off, where normally you're at the office, you log off, you know, 6, 7 o'clock or whatever, and you go home and kind of separate the two quite easily. Where here, that's been more of a challenge. Um, exercise, you're not moving as much. I mean, we can, we're allowed to go out for one hour a day, and that's it. So, you know, I've got a rowing machine here, I've got some weights in here, I get up at 6 every single morning to make sure that I, I have a strict routine there, diet's very important. I'm very fortunate I'm in a household with people I absolutely love and adore. I've got my, my 10-year-old son here a lot of the time, Jagger. We've got a newborn, Eddie, who's, well, he's not newborn anymore. He's actually eight months um, in a few days. And then Charlene, who's an amazing partner. So I'm, I'm surrounded by the people I love. And one of the positive um, aspects of being in this is I travel nearly every week or every second week. So I'm, I'm always uh, away a day or two here and there. And the fact that I've been able to spend so much time with Eddie, like just before this, I got off a call, I went outside, Saw Eddie for a couple of minutes, you know, had some giggles with him, give him back to mum and then come back in here and, and do what I'm doing with you for the next hour or so. So, you know what I mean? That you, You've got to try and find the positive aspects to it and you've got to know that it will when you, ju- you know that it will end. You just don't know when. 
And that's the big challenge, right? Because it's a, it's a moving set of goalposts. So you've got to remove your expectation as well. And I think that's important. But in saying all of that, it's hard because my partner's um, Charlene's family's over in Adelaide. We can't go there. Mine's up in Queensland. So their miles will be on Mars at the moment because, you know, and, and for Charlene's family, it's their first grandchild. So it's particularly hard. So there's certainly challenges and you've got to acknowledge that. And one thing that I've found, and you know this well, um, hands because we've caught up and spoken about mental health and various other aspects of life on many occasions but recognizing your emotions and how you're feeling at the, that particular point in time and acknowledging that is a big part of moving through it and I never did that very well and I do that much more effectively so um, now as a 40 year old versus what I could do you know 15 20 10 three years ago perhaps um, so I think that's probably put me in a good position but yeah we'll get through it eventually and yeah it's just testing the resilience and get through it and get stronger again i think and and so with your business how have you found working remotely as you said and i know you travel constantly with your business and the ceo of any business i know myself you know, we've got a nationwide business from west australia to the northern north queensland you've got to be out and about and seeing the staff yeah you can't do that anymore you, you, uh -huh. you you're barely lucky to go 500 meters outside of your outside of your front door for nearly six months so how have you adapted your daily activities in, in your business life? Uh, you've mentioned your exercise, your personal uh, way to manage your well-being, um, emotional, emotional, mental well-being. But what are some business practices that, that viewers, listeners might, might learn from that you've been able to run a team of 70 people in different parts of Australia, and you mentioned in Hong Kong, um, and, and has that speed of the business picked up or slowed down? It's, it's really, really funny because obviously this all took place back in March where COVID really hit Australia and we all went into the various lockdowns around each of the states. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, there was a week there. I mean, I, I'm doing, an, I'm running an investment firm. So markets matter to us. And when that volatility kicked in and, you know, markets were sort of, you know, anywhere from six to 7% on about six occasions were going down through that uh, period. It, it was very stressful. And then at the same time, not only are you trying to manage a business through that type of market contraction and volatility, you're also trying to get your business to operate remotely and have everybody working from home. So there was that first part of the transition, which, you know, from all the different investment funds, making sure we wrote down the intangibles, got our actuaries, in, we used Deloitte's, we made sure we did everything at a rapid speed. We went and spoke to all our third party providers, our platform providers, the banks, um, anyone else that was involved from an IT perspective um, around the business to make sure everything was operational more externally. So get server upgrades, all that sort of stuff. Make sure that everyone had access from their home. You know, there's a few people still, even within our business that don't have internet at home. So has everyone got dongles um, and the key platform areas that need um, that already have internet but need a backup dongle to, to make sure that if anything happens to the internet in their area that they can still operate. So there's all these things that you had to think through and that's just a very, very few superficial examples. And we did that very, very effectively. So we were able to move the business out at a rapid rate. And then furthermore, we built in a, a really strict operating rhythm, I call it, where I check in with my senior executive team every single day at 9am for half an hour where I go through all the issues um, of the business that might have popped up over the last 24 hours. I also look forward to the three key things that they're focusing on for the day. I also make sure from a sales point of view that we're uppering, uppering, 
upping our operating rhythm in terms of our productivity measures because we're on VCs all the time. So I say to the sales guys, well, you can talk to more people because you don't have to worry about commuting and you know setting up times. And so you've got more capacity to be able to do meetings. We also moved to a very, very quick um, online strategy around our marketing and distribution. Um, and we also changed our sales focus. Um, one of the, I guess, key characteristics of our product is that it's credit protected. Um, and it's also very good for estate planning. So it's, it's a bit like superannuation in terms of what some of the tax structure of investment bonds offer. And so estate planning, you have 100% binding nominations. And so estate planning, given you know the whole pandemic going on was becoming front and center for people, credit protection, because obviously businesses, particularly in travel and hospitality, were quite compromised or you know, going under through that period. So we made sure we changed our focus. And so all of those things sort of, um, you know, sort of brought together, we actually did a record Q4 um, of the business of all time, and we were all operating remotely. Um, so I think the intensity of focus, we created operational efficiency in the business. We really narrowed our focus on a couple of key areas where we saw would offer value to financial advisors, which is a distribution platform. And we were able to center in on that and really drive the business hard, um, even through the midst of, of this pandemic and operating where 70 to 75% of our personnel actually sit at head office in Melbourne. So I think, you know, you can go through those periods and you can look at it one or two ways. You can be a victim and say, I've got an excuse now, fantastic. I'm gonna leverage that for poor performance or mediocre performance, or you can go, and this is kind of what I do naturally, and I even said it to my chairman. I said, well, this is a great opportunity to test yourself, see how good you are, see what you can do, and see what outcomes you can deliver. Because great businesses are built through these type of periods as well. And you've got to recognize the, that aspect of, of what you're doing. And we had a very strong financial profile in our business too. We had no debt. Um, we had plenty of capital on the balance sheet to, to meet our regulatory requirements probably threefold. And we were you know, growing very, very quickly as a business too. So we were generating a lot of revenue. So we were in a great position to be able to sort of take the bull by the horns and really drive it. Um, and that's what we did. And still today, I never thought I'd be sitting here in September in exactly the same position as I have been for the last six or seven months, but I am. And we seem to be doing pretty well. I find it's hard because I get to connect with my staff as much as I would like. I don't get to connect with customers as much as I would like, but I do as much as I can to stay interactive with the team. We always have a town hall every week. Right now you can see on my wrist, I've got a, a step, a little watch to count the steps. We've got a step challenge uh, going right now, an individual and a team one. So we're just driving all these little things that we can put in place just to keep everyone's morale up and focus up. And as a team, we, we have actually come together um, much more effectively than what I thought we would. And I think that's a sign of a great team when they come together through stressful times. Otherwise, in those high pressure, stressful environments, those fractures, those small hairline cracks become really, really wide and really, really big and really, really exposed. So we were fortunate enough not to um, incur those sorts of issues. But every day I wake up on the edge of my seat going, well, what, what's today? So you've got to maintain that, that degree of focus and, and not get relaxed at all because that's when it'll bite you on the backside. Mate, some great lessons and takeaways there. That, that that's awesome, Hacky. And yeah, I made a couple of notes here myself. And and and, and that's a rhythm and 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 challenging and 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 not worrying about what you can't control, and and that that victim versus player mentality. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and I'll I can, send you out the note I sent to my team, articulating sort of five key areas to focus on in these sorts of things. And the first one I let off with, I actually said to the team, I said. 
as an athlete, um, the one thing that I, I learned first and foremost was stop worrying about the things you can't control. Because a lot of the time, and this even I think happened to Kieran Perkins in 1992, the guy that I raced in Sydney that you alluded to in your intro, he was leaving the Olympic Village, going to the final of his 1500 meter freestyle and the bus was going the wrong way. But that's a very, very stressful situation as it is going into an Olympic final as the number one competitor and expected to win. But when the bus is going the other way and you've got this set routine, you could really lose it. And the bus driver apparently couldn't speak English. Apparently they ended up getting off and they, there was some other way that they got there. But that's a really good example of an extreme situation where you've got to try and let go of what you can't control, but find a way through it. Mate, it's, uh, yeah, as I said, some great lessons there. I know in our business, absolutely, the rhythm has sped up significantly. Uh, and it and it really required that presence of mind to just pivot at speed the moment the shutdown came. You can't worry about it. You can't complain about it. You can't control it. So what are you going to do as a business? And, you know, if you think, and viewers right around the world uh, basically haven't been on a plane for six months, um, what a great opportunity that is to spend time with the family, to actually spend time thinking about your business and thinking about your team, and I know myself as a CEO, I've become so much more aware of the people in the business and the importance of spending time uh, with our people, not in person, unfortunately, but but via Zoom and town halls and those sorts of things, I agree. And that, that, that rhythm, rhythm in a business is another key lesson. It's so important to have a rhythm and a, or a cadence within a business. And it's, it's really sped up uh, throughout COVID, I agree. And it's yeah, the amount of people, business owners that I talk to, have a similar story to yours. I mean, although you've moved at, at, at real speed, which is really impressive, uh, but people have invariably found their business is far more efficient. And you've mentioned you had a record Q4. Quite a number of businesses have traded very, very well through COVID. And and I guess the the opportunity there is to be optimistic about what's coming and uh, probably not read the front page of the of the of the, the paper every day, but but really bunker down as a team pretty soul destroying if you put the news on or you read the paper whilst you're in bed you wouldn't get out <laughs> it'd be that disastrous <laughs> that's right that's right well good news doesn't really sell does it so um and i love the idea of the step challenge uh great idea to keep everyone fit and uh and and moving about so mate the Self-storage, so let's just bring it into self-storage a little bit. We've been investing together since the mid-2000s. Uh, we first invested in a self-storage uh, project, a greenfield project at Melbourne Airport. Uh, I remember uh, driving on there, so it'll uh, embarrass you and me, but uh, driving on there in, uh, in a pretty flash car. You were driving around back, back then onto a building site in a Ferrari. Uh, didn't go down too well, uh, but, um, but that project came out of the ground wonderfully and uh, it was a really successful project for us both and our fellow investors, and we've rolled into some others subsequently. Uh, so I suppose I wanted to see if you could describe f- for, the, for the, the audience what, what attracted you to self-storage investment, um, and, and with your inv- investment analyst hat on, because I know you're, you're very financially literate, can you give a bit of a risk-return analysis of how you see the sector? It's still regarded in Australia as, as an alternate property sector. It's very much coming into the mainstream now. Uh, but, yeah, perhaps you could just chat through that and contrast it perhaps with some other investment classes that you see about the place. Might be as alternate now, the amount of office space and commercial real estate that might be getting used after COVID. So yeah, uh, might correct. be a bit more mainstream then. But um, 
Yeah, I mean, I've always loved self-storage. There's, there's two areas I've always loved, and they're, they're not what you'd call sexy businesses, as, as I like to put it. Um, and one was self-storage, and this was literally as a teenager, I'd talk to my dad about it, because I've always loved business and commerce, and car parks. Normally, they're great properties in great areas with you know high residential around them, or in the case of car parks, or even in you know CBDs, depending on where they're located or, or what the you know sort of structure of the area you're in actually looks like. Um, great properties, and then furthermore, reoccurring revenue. People need them. You need to park your car somewhere each day, depending if you're going to a large shopping centre or going to the CBD or wherever it might be. And then, of course, people love to collect and keep their stuff. People buy stuff, and then. You know, when you're in a situation where you see a growing population, you see, you know, not right now, but normally significant um, migration into to Australia. Therefore, you know, people want to be close to work. They don't want to keep commuting because roads are so congested. So therefore, they move into smaller places, closer to the city. However, they've got plenty of stuff, so they need somewhere to put it. Most people don't like to get rid of their stuff. It's just the way people seem to behave. So that, to me, though, all those different components, growing population, people wanting to live closer to the city, accumulating stuff, good property. For me, self-storage seems like a no-brainer. Um, so one, I was really attracted to, to the industry just because of those fundamentals um, that I could see in it. I also think um, they're large sites too. So if you get your hands on a good site and you, it's a long-term property hold, and the fact that it's able to service itself plus provide an income on, on top of that. Eventually it might get rezoned and there might be an opportunity for even a larger development or a residential development on top of that. So I think those sorts of attributes to the storage industry are interesting as well. And I also think there's an opportunity for consolidation. Um, I think a lot of these um, self-storage facilities, because it is an alternative asset, um, I think there's been a lot of mums and dads who've just owned these places. So there's not much efficiency in terms of the way the business is probably being run. Um, so I think you can actually add a lot to the, the current business model to make it more efficient, lower the cost, do better marketing, um, be able to attract more business. So I think, you know, you kind of bring all that together. It's it's just a great little business. And, mm. and I kind of liked it when I first went into it with you because it just wasn't that popular and no one knew about it. And we kind of got in there and we've done exceptionally well um, in the industry and you've grown an amazing business um, out of it and, and we continue to, to invest and, and watch it grow and, and capture more and more opportunities and you know we've seen one listed operator now within our country so you can see the maturity of the, the business starting to, to grow and, uh, and and certainly make some gains forward. Now look I, yeah, I agree with all that and and, and that was the, the premise that we came into self-storage on was uh, one of the things was not many other people were doing it, which is often a, often a good indication uh, of where you should be heading. For, um, and and also, yeah, just those fundamental drivers. And it's interesting you touch on population growth. Right now, there's not much population movement. Uh, but just reading back over history, whenever there's been really significant global moments, such as world wars and, and the like, um, and this pandemic right now, it always creates change in the way that people live and it and it creates human movement. So people will move. People will move to different places, uh, initially within their their border, the borders of their country. And already we're starting to see a lot of movement north towards uh, the warmer climes of southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales. But I would mind betting that that post COVID, uh, when when the world is moving past this, that there there will be a significant move of population to places such as Australia. Uh, which outside of metropolitan Melbourne has managed the COVID crisis particularly well. 
Um, so uh, we're looking forward to that. I think if you're isolated to the rest of the world, you're doing particularly well in something like this. And I think that's, mm. you know, the, the fact that we're a large island actually helps when it comes to a pandemic. It, it sure does. It sure does. Uh, and we saw a huge spike in demand in June. We had our best month ever as a business. And I know other operators have, have had the same experience or similar. And I guess in Melbourne, we're, we're anticipating a resurgence of demand post-COVID. I guess the question is, we just don't know how much of that demand might have been eaten away through the extended lockdown that's been on there. But we'll wait and see. Uh, but uh, today they announced uh, the, the beginning of some some slight slight easing of the lockdown measures, uh, and we'll and and the, the the summer the summer starting to come, change in the weather. Hopefully, we'll see uh, a bit of movement uh, in in the storage game again in Melbourne um, over the coming months. Yeah. So, but let's just go back to that intersection of business and sport if we can uh, you know i love reading and listening to stories of high performers in, in business and sport and, and and i really do believe in the crossover of these two areas and and the commonalities of success for you the 1500 meter swim which is as i mentioned earlier it's it's a very definition of endurance and and resilience it's uh, you know it requires a continuation on through unbelievable barriers of pain uh, and training like that for years and years um, uh, I've just taken up swimming training in Melbourne. I'm going to have to get you to give me a hand, by the way. Uh, and and using an extreme sense of competitiveness to, to prevail. Um, so can you can you talk us through? It's it's interesting. There's often a moment in a in an elite athlete's life where um, where there's a realization that you've got something special, or there's a drive within you that you realize, uh, or, or there's a mentor along the way. So w- was there something? Was there a moment uh, that you, you realised you've got an engine that's going to drive you to success and something that motivated you then to continue at the top for, for over 10 years? It'd be really good to, to understand that. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole argument between nature and nurture, right, as, as an athlete, but what, what makes you great at what you do? And I think for me, there, there's a few sort of key points um, along the way. One, my brother was six and a half years older than me, so I basically did everything he did. And it made me um, ultra competitive because he was great. He used to win everything. He used to break all the records. And so I sort of looked at that as a bit of a goal was to be as good as him or try and be better at some things. Um, So that was one aspect of it. And I was always a very relaxed character. Uh, For anybody that knows me more socially, they'd probably see me as relaxed. But if you know me from my competitive side, you wouldn't think that at all. So... And, and I sort of fooled my parents a little bit like that too, because every time I jump in the water, even from the age of five, I would be super competitive. It was like this, this shift, this switch would go on. Um, so I always had that in me. And, and I don't know why, it's, that's just the way I was built. So that, that's kind of um, a bit more of just my, my natural nature and, and the way I operate as an individual. I think as I got older, um, I probably, you know, I've always been tall. So, you know, I'm six foot six. and. I think all those things in, in the sport that I was choosing was you know, particularly helpful. Um, but I wasn't always the very best. I always knew I was good every time I trained and I trained hard and focused. I always got good results. And so it always came back to that. I, I was able to draw the conclusion between if you work hard and you prepare and you focus on a specific goal, geez, it seems to be more likely to happen. And, and I recognized that from a very young age. So when I was 13, Sydney got the Olympics. Um, that was a big moment because I knew I'd be 20 for those Olympic Games and I thought I've got to capitalise on that. Then the next 
um, thing that I, I, I did was I literally got all the best times for Kieran Perkins across every single event that I could find. And every single year for age 13, 14, 15, 16 and beyond, I was trying to emulate or better those times. And so it was pretty simple. It was like, well, if the best and is doing that, the Olympic champion, the world record holder, then what did he do now? And what were the sort of incremental steps that he took along the way to, to be able to get there? And I thought, well, the path of least resistance is walking something that someone has w walked before. And that's exactly what I did. It was, it was pretty straightforward. No one told me what to do. It was on my own bat that I kind of worked out. That seemed, and that's a good thing about being a kid. You kind of just look at it for what it is and go, okay, this seems like it should work. And that's what I did. And, and that was just my goal every single year. And, you know, motivation is not something that you have to wait for. And then all of a sudden you spring into action. Motivation comes through doing. That's the way that works. It's not something you have to sit on the couch for five hours watching TV and say, I'm just not motivated yet. It comes through the action of doing. And then you do one thing and you go, okay, that turned out okay. Then you do the next thing. And then it kind of goes on from there. And that's that's why it's important, particularly in sport, not to plateau or to get off the plateau as quick as you can around performance. And I think that's actually important anywhere because that's when you can get really, really stuck. So you've always got to be finding ways to improve and that motivates you to put that extra bit in. And I think that's all I did. I just became stronger and tougher. I was able to absorb more pain. I was able to, I was always very driven, but I was able to take that drive to the next level um, just because of the doing and the degree of focus that I had on all those sort of incremental goals. And I was very clear with those goals. Every time I'd finish the season, I'd be right. This is the next goal. This is the next step. And I was always very determined to, to take that. But don't get me wrong. There are some days I did not want to get up a quarter to five in the middle of winter and go to that pool. But you just kind of don't think about it too much. You just do it. And then all of a sudden, all you know, next minute you know, you're in the pool, you're doing the work, and then you're kind of pushing yourself harder. And harder. It's like when you go to the gym, it's the same sort of thing. You know, you... You kind of don't want to go to the gym, then you go there and you think, oh, I'll just take it easy. Then all of a sudden you start getting into it then you start pushing yourself. It's exactly the same thing as an athlete, just to obviously a different extent. Fascinating. It, mate, you've been the Australian team captain several times. So that tells me that you've bought into the concept of teamwork. And I know that you, without shouting it, you've always provided a strong mentoring role to up-and-coming swimmers. And you've really had that strong leadership within you but there's a real dichotomy there isn't there between you as an individual individual pursuing success in the pool uh, and going for individual medals but also taking that team leadership role can you describe that balance uh, and that and how that's how that applies perhaps in business and and talk through what teamwork means to you and and what role it's it's played in creating and supporting your sustained success uh, in, in and out of the pool it's funny. I um, yeah, it is a real dichotomy that whole team and individual sport because it's a team sport until you actually have to compete, and that's it. That's the only time it's actually individual. So its whole perception though is it's individual, which mm -hmm. is not really the case at all. The thing that I've found about um, leadership is being genuine and caring for other people's performances. You either feel like that as a person because you're, I don't know, empathetic and, and you have a bit of EQ that you can tap into and you actually just care. And it's really funny. I, I've always just cared about other people's performances. Like I, I don't know why I just do. And I really care about it in the business. I care about seeing people uh, in good mental health and good spirits and, and doing well and watching them progress and, and take the next step in their career. I just, I find that gives me inspiration if I'm going to do it from a selfish perspective. So the, the ironic thing about being a, an individual sport 
is I, you know, I got promoted to the, the position of captain. They actually reintroduced it because they said, you've been doing this role on the team. We might as well just formalize it. And it was really funny. I, I found the more I put into other people and because I wanted to and I just like seeing them do well, it comes back to you about tenfold. Yeah. So, <laughs> so true. So, true. so if you're an individual performer and you're isolated from everybody else and you're saying no to every single little interaction or investment into any other person around you, fine, it'll just be you and you'll get your performance and you won't have any ownership or accountability to anybody else. And that's, that's good. You think you're probably just completely focused on what you're doing for me. And from what I've seen, that doesn't actually, actually promote the best performance. Sometimes putting a little bit of time and energy into other people actually comes back to give you a lot more um, in your own performance. And, and it was funny that year that you alluded to in the, the introduction where I got world swimmer of the year. And it was only one of the few times where Michael Phelps didn't get it was the year I actually got that captaincy role. And I was actually a lot more proactive into putting into everybody else and everybody else then, you know, sort of promoted and, you know, pushed and helped and supported my performance. So it's a real uh, irony, the, the way that dynamic actually works. But we're a team the whole time. We travel as a team. We train as a team. We eat as a team. We stay in the same hotel. We don't just, we're just not like this sort of male macho mentality. We have girls on the team too that we have to consider. So it's, it's a balanced sort of environment that you're in and a lot more that you have to consider in terms of the type of people in there. You can have a girl who's as young as 14 or 15, like a Liesl Jones who went to the Sydney Olympics um, as a 15 year old, or you can have a 30 year old male on the team. Very, very different personality types. It's almost like trying to be a manager at McDonald's, I used to call it. Like you've just got mm. everyone from all walks of life and you've got to bring them all together to be this cohesive team. And, and we were really effective about that. And I think that attribute of being genuine and caring about people as a leader, but at the same time, keeping them accountable and honest to what they said they were going to do is, is a really important balance. And I think keeping people accountable and keeping them responsible is a part of being genuine. Um, because if you don't set out and do what you said you were going to do, then there's an integrity issue there and that needs to be managed. And if you're not managing it with people, your whole business is not doing it because if they see you let up on one person around their responsibilities, everyone else thinks it's okay to be a four out of 10 too instead of a nine out of 10. Absolutely agree. Some great leadership lessons there. Uh, couldn't agree more, mate. And uh, the saying we've got here, integrity, is, is uh, what you do when no one else is looking. And, yeah, it's a really, really good test for, for people uh, and, and for leaders too. And, and, and people can see that, that authenticity in leadership. And I think 2020 has really brought the need for authenticity through. People have had time to reflect, pause, the great pause, as we call it, and really reflect what they want out of life and so they're looking for leaders who are empathetic who've got authenticity and 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 lead from the heart uh, so yeah. it, it's great to hear you doing that but i'm conscious of your precious time and i know you've got a very busy uh business life there and uh and and, and family so i'm going to hit you with a few quick questions to finish if that's okay i could, yeah, I could sure. talk no, for hours okay so some quick questions what's a book or a podcast that you've enjoyed recently that you'd refer to someone um, so a podcast that I listened to recently, um, is Apollo Ono. Um, and I forget who he did the podcast with, but it was like four and a half hours and it was awesome. Um, I really, really enjoyed that whenever I got some free time. He's, um, a U.S. speed skater who's one of the best speed skaters of all time. He's got eight Olympic medals. I think four of them are gold. Mm -hmm. Um, and if I could think of the individual I would tell you, but I really enjoyed what he had to say, actually. And we, I ended up following 
him on Instagram and vice versa. And um, so I thought just his insights about the way he approached his sport and his perfection around high performance and, and winning was, was outstanding, but a really good human being as well. Fantastic. So I enjoyed that. So what was the name of that podcast again? I don't know the name of the podcast, but the individual that was on it was uh, Apollo Ono. I'll have to send it through to you so you can... Ono, yeah. Okay. Great. O-H-N-O is his surname. Okay. Um, So there was that. And it's funny. I read the book. I'm currently reading um, Shoe Dog with Phil Knight, but the book that I reread this year, because I always like it, particularly in the COVID situation, because it gets you back to fundamentals and just provides you a different perspective on life, is the the subtle art of not giving... uh, you know, the, the rest of that, Mark Manson. So um, I reread that book and that was a really good perspective shift because, you know, you go through your ups and downs in this situation. So thoroughly enjoyed that. Great recommendations, both those books, I have to say. Your most feared opponent in the pool? Uh, Ian Thorpe, yeah. He was he was a tough one to crack. I've got to beat him every now and again. I used to come into his races, but... Um, he was so tough and remarkable and just the way he could drop world records time in, time out again. I mean, I broke world records on four or five occasions but finished second. So mm. <laughs> who does that? Who breaks a world record but doesn't get to win? <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, that that final leg in a relay at the Olympics, I'll never forget it. Unbelievable. Uh, your highest moment as a competitor? Uh, look, if I... Um, ever had a, a situation where you could say that could be a dream scenario a guy who i had his times up on the wall he'd won the last two olympic games he was a world record holder and you get to go to an olympic games in your own backyard in sydney 2000 and then all of a sudden you're standing on the blocks next to this guy going into the event that's the most gold medal event in your nation's history across any sport and so I, I got that moment and I, and I got to win in that moment. So I think it's, it's a pretty difficult one to beat. That's like batting with Sir Donald Bradman and then beating his record whilst he's there uh, with you, you know, as a cricketer. Yeah. That's how I likened uh, to, it, to it. Great. And, and so good of you to acknowledge Kieran and, and his, um, his role in the 1500. He was, he was a, an absolute Iceman, but, uh, but you knocked him off, which is great. And your toughest moment as a competitor? Oh, the, the toughest moment would have to be, there's two, um, in terms of losing was the 4x2 freestyle relay in Athens where we lost by 0.1 to the Americans and losing in 2008 um, where my heat time would have won that race, but unfortunately I, I executed a poor final and finished second. So they're the two probably toughest silver moments. Toughest gold moment was winning the 1500 in 04 with a partially collapsed lung because I got pneumonia at the start of the year then had a chronic chest infection. Um, that was the most painful experience that I've ever had throughout my entire career. Yeah, phenomenal, mate, that you were able to pull that off, seriously. What behaviours are non-negotiable for you, Hacky? Oh, you've got to do what you say you're going to do. Um, yeah, there's quite a few, actually. That's a long list. Um, I always say, you know, things like being on time to meetings, being... Um, transparent, open and honest, um, integrity, all those sorts of things are, um, are factors that um, are absolutely crucial. Uh, loyalty is probably my number one characteristic and that can be to, to my detriment sometimes, but that's a, a non-negotiable for me as well. Um, and if I'm talking about business, I always say, look, if, you know, and I used to use this example before he unfortunately passed away um, this year, but, you know, the late Kobe Bryant, I said, if Kobe Bryant 
turns up late to training and then doesn't plan the weekend, do you think anybody else will turn up late? So double standards are really important not to have those within your business. If you've got those in, in any area, they're a great way to fracture a team. Um, if you're treating even the most outstanding competitor or performer better than anybody else. So having a bunch of values that everybody signs up for and subscribes to is really, really important. And if they don't fit within those values, don't waste time with having those people hang around. You're doing yourself and you're doing your team. And most importantly, you're actually doing that individual disservice. Yeah, it's a good question though, to think through some yeah, of that to, to actually come out with a half decent answer. That's good, mate, good, good answer. Favorite place to holiday? Where will we find Hacky and the gang when uh, when the lockdown ends? <laughs> well, hopefully outside of our apartment. Eventually, that'd be nice. Oh, <laughs> uh, look, there's a few places. I, I always love the Gold Coast because my family's up there, so I always enjoy visiting there because of the beaches. I love far north Queensland as well. Um, absolute beautiful spot. If I was to choose um, anywhere overseas, uh, I love Europe, like I love Italy. You know, so many great places um, to go there and to experience. And this will sound a really, really weird one, but I love Arizona. I actually really love Arizona. And I'm not sure if anyone would call it a holiday destination, but I've got a lot of good friends there, namely Michael Phelps, who I lived there with for, for some time. And um, I, just, I just always get a good feeling there. Always feel relaxed, mm. always enjoy it. So it's a place that I, I love to go. But Fantastic. I've given you my top five, haven't I? You have, mate. You have. That's good. Sounds like a great trip. Um, last question, Hacky. What is Grant Hackett doing in 10 years' time? Uh, I hope I'm running the same business. Um, I hope we're a, a bigger business, uh, more diversified uh, within financial services with various product lines and, and different business lines. Um, yeah, it'd be great if we're a, I'd love to be a top 200 company here. So if I'm being completely honest, that'd, that'd be pretty cool. And in 10 years' time, that might be something something that's uh, attainable. So. And investing in self-storage, no doubt. I'll always be investing in self-storage. <laughs> you know that. You just keep those distributions coming, hands. That's, that's all it. we're worried about here. That's it. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Definitely be doing that. I love the self-storage. Yeah, great. Hey, Hacky, mate, we are out of time. Thank you so much uh, for giving us uh, an, an hour. Um, I, uh, I wish you the best. Uh, it's been such a pleasure to see your career and uh, and and be be involved, uh, you know, through that with you. And I, and as I said earlier, you're just getting ready to write a few more chapters, and uh, I can't wait to watch it. Thanks for your support in self storage and for today, and uh, and we look forward to seeing you in the flesh sometime, either before or after Christmas. We'll we'll wait and see uh, see what COVID brings us. So thanks, mate, for all your time. We'll definitely be catching up. And, um, yeah, thanks for the chat. Really enjoyed it. And uh, and thanks to you, Hans, at a personal level. You've been there through all my ups and all my downs. And you've always been a great friend and a loyal person. So I know Store Local and uh, anything you're involved in always has, has great leadership and um, almost great moral fabric is the way I put it. So uh, thanks for your friendship. And, and, mate, thanks for you know being in business with me for so long. Much appreciated. Cheers, mate. Enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, thanks again. Talk soon. Beautiful. Thanks, Hans. See you, mate. Well, what a fantastic chat with Grant Hackett. Uh, some, some lessons there that, that we can bring straight into our daily lives and our business life. There's someone who has really had some outstanding success uh, in sport and is bringing those lessons into his daily life and really interestingly into his business life as the CEO of a nationwide business. During the COVID lockdown, he's pivoted and his business has actually sped up and they've reported some record results. So 
Great lessons there from Grant. I know you're going to enjoy it. And uh, we look forward to seeing you for our next doorcast coming up in a couple of weeks' time.